All right, we'll be discussing again baptism this morning, so we're going to pick up uh, the subject in Acts chapter 8, picking it up in verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Canice, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting on his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And thus is the reading of God's word. And all his people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to open up your word and learn of Christ and all that he hath accomplished and what things that we should do to glorify the Lord. We ask thee this day, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, pour out thy spirit, that we may understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Well, I want to discuss, as I said, baptism this morning. I want us to have an appreciation for what it is because it's a lot of things. So you ask yourself the question, do I need to be baptized to be saved? Well, that depends on what you mean by baptism. So I've had conversations with people, and uh, they've asked the question. I go, well, yes, you, must, you have to be baptized to be saved. And then I've had other conversations with people, and I've said, well, no, you don't need to be baptized. It's, it's symbolic. Um, so which is it? Must you be baptized, or is it strictly symbolic? Well, as you can see from the outline that I gave you, or the notes, I gave you a couple of notes that you can look at. That depends on what you mean by baptism. Now, baptism has lots of different meanings in this scripture. If you look at Matthew chapter 3, um, verse 11 through 17, it means five different things there in that verse. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 17, it means five different things. In those few verses alone. This is the occasion when John the Baptist is uh, baptizing. And he says in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 3, he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. 
he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. All right, we're already up to three meetings of baptism. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I need not, I need, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Obviously, it's a different baptism. And Jesus answered, answering, said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and lifted him up. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There are five different meanings of the word baptism in those verses alone. Over in Isaiah 28, 9 through 10, it talks about how do we learn things in the Scripture. Um, well, we learn a little bit at a time. In Isaiah 28, 9, it says, For, it says, Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Well, the answer is them that are weaned from the breast and drawn, weaned from milk and drawn from the breast. In other words, you feed babies milk and you feed adults meat. You can't, adults are not satisfied with milk and babies would choke on meat. So it's a little here, a little there, you teach people things. And then he says in verse 10, for precept must be upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And so you teach things a little bit at a time. So you know, we've been teaching things over the course of several years, and so these things ought to be coming together um, for those that have been with us a long time. Um, we had talked about Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 26, a couple of weeks ago, and there the Lord talks about how he is going to um, give us a new spirit. He says, I will put within you a new spirit. He's going to put his spirit within us. So that's the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You absolutely must have that to be saved. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he speaks of the same thing, about the washing of renewal and regeneration of the Holy Ghost. In Titus 3, 5, he says, For we ourselves, excuse me, not by words of righteousness, I'll, I'll pick it up in verse 4, but after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. God came to you, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord. So those are two verses there that speak about receiving the Holy Ghost, and that's what is necessary. That baptism is absolutely, positively necessary. So in the section of Matthew here, when John talks about baptizing, he says, well, I baptize with the baptism of repentance. In other words, you would come to him, you would be baptizing, baptized, acknowledging your need to turn away from your sin. That's a baptism of repentance. And so uh, John's baptism is associated with that. But John here speaks about Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The first one is salvation. That's, being, that's receiving the Holy Ghost, and that's what regenerates and renews a person. And then he speaks about being baptized with fire. That is judgment. And he tells you what that means in the very next verse here. He talks about Jesus acting as a winnower, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purchase floor. So to get this imagery of a winnower's floor, and there's wheat, which is covered with the husk, which they call chaff. And so you separate the two with wind, you blow the chaff off, 
and the wheat you gather, you garner, uh, gather into your um, garner, which is a silo, a barn, but the chaff you blow away, and that is burned. So he's talking about separation, a baptism of fire, judgment, and a baptism of regeneration, where people come into um, his heavenly kingdom. And so Jesus comes to be baptized, and John, I don't think, understands what's taking place here because he says, wait a minute, I need to be baptized of you. Obviously, Jesus isn't going to receive a baptism of repentance. He's God Almighty. In him was no sin, he did no sin, and he knew no sin. He's got nothing to repent of. Jesus is talking about something else here. He's going to have John baptism because John, you'll recall, is of the priestly line. His parents were of the Aaronic priesthood, and John is a priest in that order. Jesus, who is going to be our high priest, is going to go down and be baptized, which is talked about back in um, Leviticus, oh, I think it's chapter 8, verse 6, where Moses was told to wash Aaron and his sons. He was told to wash them because they are going to become priests. And then in verse 12 of Leviticus 8, the Holy Ghost, excuse me, oil is poured on the priests, and that's a type of receiving the Holy Ghost. So exactly what took place in Leviticus where God told Moses how to anoint and prepare Aaron, his brother, and his sons for the priesthood, the exact same thing happened to Jesus because he's going to be our high priest. That's another baptism, and that's not one we're going to talk about today. So you see there on your notes, I've got Matthew 3, 11 through 17, where there's a to- um, uh, five different types of baptism spoken about in those few verses alone. Well, there are five meanings of baptism that have to do with salvation. And so I've given you there a clever sentence right below that where it says five meanings with respect to salvation. And I say, baptized, he was baptized and was baptized to be baptized into his baptism. Five different meanings of the same word. And so we need to understand what that means. So I've given you notes there. One, meaning baptized, meaning immersed in the teaching of Christ. The gospel is preached to them. He was, too, baptized by the Holy Ghost. We saw this take place in Cornelius chapter, in, uh, Acts chapter 10 with respect to Cornelius, and also Acts chapter 8. So, and then three, he was baptized in water. Fourth meaning, to be baptized, which means identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ into his baptism, meaning Christ's death. So, one, taught of Christ, he received the Holy Ghost, he was immersed in water to be identified with Christ's death. Those are all uh, part of the meaning of baptism, depending on the word, con- uh, depending on the context. And so I've shared this with us many times, but the three most important things to understand something in the Scripture is context, context, context. It's just like real estate. Location, location, location. Um, so what is meant by baptism and what does our um, does the young man that wants to be baptized? What does how does he understand it? And what baptism is he talking about here? Well, in the book of Acts, you'll see that baptism takes place in a variety of meanings in a number of different locations. In Acts chapter two, uh, verse forty-one, it speaks about how a number of people were saved. Peter has just finished preaching the gospel to a large number of people, and then in verse forty-one, it says, "Then." They that gladly received his word were baptized. In other words, they heard it, they understood it, and why? how can anybody understand the Bible absent the Holy Ghost? The answer is they can't. They have to have received the Holy Ghost to understand the word. They would gladly receive it. So he preaches to a whole bunch of people. Some gladly receive it, others don't. The ones that gladly receive it, those are the ones that were baptized. Now, you don't know what's in view here. Does that mean the Holy Ghost or does that mean water baptism? could mean both. 
And that same day were added unto them, meaning the church, about 3,000 souls. So obviously God is pouring out his Holy Spirit because a lot of people are understanding and appreciating the gospel, and therefore they uh, have been baptized by the Holy Ghost and desire the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So now the question is, who's the one dispensing the Holy Ghost? Where does that come from? Does that come from man, or does that come from God? So as you go through the book of Acts, it can be confusing uh, because people understand different things. In Acts chapter 8, before the section I read, it speaks about um, Philip has gone down to um, Samaria, and he's preached Christ unto them. That's verse 5. He preached Christ. You always have to preach Christ. So he's preaching Christ, and uh, it says, And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So Philip's able to do miracles to authenticate the word that he's preaching. Some of the people are hearing it. It says there was great joy in that city as you continue down there. Then there's this fellow, Simon the sorcerer, who kind of misunderstands what's taking place here. The scripture here says that he believed, but you have to ask yourself, what exactly did he believe? Bible doesn't tell us what he believed. Clearly, he doesn't believe that Christ is the Messiah because he's got this misunderstanding about what the Holy Ghost is all about and how one um, would dispense it. So he thinks to himself, well, that'd be great. You know, if Peter's the one dispensing the Holy Spirit, I'd like to be able to do that too. He'd already been bewitching people, which is why he's called Simon the Sorcerer. So he's preaching himself and puffing himself up. Um, but he sees what Peter has, what he thinks Peter has done. And in verse 18, it says, And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. So he sees Peter come. Peter lays his hands on somebody. They receive the Holy Ghost. And he goes, Oh, Peter's the dispenser of the Holy Ghost. I want that too. And so he offers to give them money, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. What a great franchise that would be to be able to dispense salvation, to dispense God. It's kind of like the opposite of a genie. You rub the bottle and the genie comes out. Here you put your hands on the bottle and the genie comes in. That's not the way it works. So uh, men are not the ones who dispense the Holy Ghost. So now we flip over to Acts 19. And again, you might think the same thing because now Paul is going to come upon um, some men who have had the gospel preached to them incompletely by this man, Apollos. Apollos, it is said to be mighty in the word. He's quite a convincing preacher. Verse 28 of Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, verse 28. For he, that would be Apollos, mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. He's quite a convincing speaker. Now, you remember last week when we read from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul says, Hey, I did not come to you with excellency of speech. He says, And brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. In other words, I didn't convince you of anything. I'm not a good um, orator. What you believe, you believe, because God impressed the truth upon your heart. And thus it must be. So Apollos is quite the convincing speaker here, and he has done just that. He's convinced these people of certain things. So verse 1 of Acts chapter 19, it says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, finding certain disciples. Paul is coming behind him, and he's going to ask these people, verse 2, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. 
Well, I guess that's a no. They haven't even heard if there's a Holy Ghost. How could they have received one of the portions of the Trinity of the Godhead and not know about that person? In other words, they don't really believe. They do not believe in Christ. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? In other words, what are you identified with? And they said, well, unto John's baptism. That one they understood and need to repent from their sins. Um, Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So they didn't get the whole gospel, did they? They don't know anything about believing on Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptized here means they were taught about Christ. They were immersed in the teaching of Christ about who he was, uh, what he did, and who he did it for. Verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and then they spake with tongues and prophesied. Let me share with you, they spake with new tongues, not unknown tongues. So we'll talk about speaking in tongues another day. They did not speak gibberish. They did that which took place in Acts chapter 2. So there's a manifestation of the fact that they have received the Spirit. So baptism can mean identification with something, and that's what they have done. They've identified themselves with John's baptism, a need to repent. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we can get an appreciation for this idea of um, identification. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, verses 1 and 2, it speaks about identification unto Moses' baptism, an identification with Moses. So he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, He says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant of how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What is he talking about? He's talking about when God led them out of Egypt to the promised land, and he led them by day with a pillar of a cloud so they could see it. They're in the desert. There aren't any clouds there. If there is a cloud, it's over the tabernacle. They know to follow it. At night, it was a flame of fire. So he's talking about them following um, Christ as he's leading them through the wilderness. Um, and he, they all passed through the sea, meaning God parted the Red Sea, they went across it, and he drowned, of course, Pharaoh's army there. And now he uses the word baptize here in verse 2. And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the Red Sea. In other words, they're identified with Moses because of this process that they went through. They're following uh, the uh, pillar of cloud, and they went through the Red Sea as sort of a baptism and that they were separated from Egypt and identified with Moses. Now, Moses, you'll recall, represents the law. Only two people that left Egypt actually made it to the promised land because the rest died out because they didn't have faith. So here they are, they're, quote, baptized unto Moses, and yet they all perished except for two. So baptism, obviously, identification with Christ doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. And that's what Matthew chapter 7 talks about, verses 21 through 23. It talks about people that say, Lord, Lord, have we not done mighty, many mighty works in your name, cast out devils in your name? And then Jesus says to them, um, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. They never had faith, even though they're claiming that they do. It was never in their heart. So identification with is not something that is going to save you. And so they died in the wilderness. John 3, 3, which we've covered in the past, where it says, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So unless the Holy Ghost has come upon you, regenerated you, and, op- and given you a new heart, you cannot see Christ. You cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So this idea of identification with and being immersed in a teaching 
is the instruction that God gives the disciples in Matthew chapter 28. And this, no doubt, was the verse that a lot of the folks that went out on the Crusades um, probably used when they were holding a knife at somebody's throat, asking that they would confess Jesus. In uh, Matthew 28, uh, pick it up in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Not who he is, but what are they supposed to do? So he's going to tell them what they're supposed to do. They doubted what to do. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Now here's what I want you to do. Go ye therefore and teach, teach, it's the first word there, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And there's that word again, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So baptism here means to teach, to immerse somebody in the teaching of something else. And you've used that with respect to your own teaching. If you've been through an intensive um, study, um, you feel like you've been baptized. You feel like you've had the whole thing dumped onto your head, and you are just kind of overwhelmed with everything you have to learn. So that's one of the meetings that I've made um, up there in that first list of there. So the question is, who dispenses it? The answer is, of course, it is not man. It is God the Father, or it is God the Son, or it is God the Holy Ghost. And so when we read there in Matthew chapter 3, John says, well, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So he's pointing to Christ as the one who baptizes you. And yet in John chapter 3, verse 8, um, the Lord says the Holy Ghost goes where it listeth. It goes wherever it wants to. The Holy Ghost is God too, and the Holy Ghost goes wherever it wants. And uh, it's like the wind. You can't tell where it comes or where it goes. So the Holy Ghost is the one that baptizes too. And I can show you verses where it says that God the Father baptizes. So don't ever try to separate the Trinity. They're always of one accord. Now, when we look at Acts chapter 10 that our deacon read for us this morning, we should appreciate that there's an order in which things take place leading up to um, baptism. So Acts chapter 10, I want you to pay attention to verses 44 through 45. In Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 45. Now previous to that, what has Peter been doing? He's been preaching about Christ. In verse 43 he says, To him... Give all the prophets witness. In other words, Christ. Everything in the Bible testifies of who Christ is and what he has done. That's verse 43 of Acts chapter 10. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission or release. Your sins will be put away. Now, verse 44. While Peter yet spake these things, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Not everybody heard the word. Some of them heard the words. The ones that did hear the words were the ones, obviously, they were God's elect, ones whom he had preordained from the foundation of the world to hear and believe. And so the Holy Ghost falls on those individuals. Peter has laid hands on no one. Obviously, Peter is not the dispenser of the Holy Ghost, even though you might have thought that when there was the occasion with Simon the sorcerer back in Acts chapter 8. And it says, verse 45, And they of the circumcision which believed, in other words, there were some Jewish uh, people there who also believed they were astonished because they don't understand that the gospel is going out to the Gentiles too. They think it's exclusively related to them. Um, but it's not. 
God said he would pour it out to the whole world. So as they're astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues, and so we talked about that a minute ago, where these are be new tongues, not unknown tongues. And so then they get down to verse 47. Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? So he commands them to be baptized. So what's the order of events here? First, the word is preached. Second, they believe, meaning they've received the Holy Ghost. There's a profession of faith in there. And then they're baptized in water. So it happens in that order. So I was baptized as an infant with the sprinkling of water. Utterly meaningless. I did not believe at the time. I made no profession of faith. I had not received the Holy Ghost. It was absolutely a meaningless uh, ceremony. We can talk about that later, why some people think it's a covenant, but no, it's not. It, it represents something entirely different than circumcision, but we can talk about that later. So now let's go over to Acts chapter 8. I want to walk us through Acts chapter 8. Um, that's one that I had read. This has to do with the eunuch. Now, the eunuch is an interesting case here. Philip now is coming to preach the gospel to the eunuch. He didn't know it yet, but that's where God, God has sent him here so that he can do that very thing. Now, you recall from Romans chapter 10, which we've read before, you don't need to turn there, but it basically said, I'll read it here. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, it's going to ask some questions here. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Well, they can't. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Well, they can't. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Well, they can't. <laughs> uh, and how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. In other words, God sends a preacher to somebody he wants to hear the gospel. Once they've heard the gospel, then they can believe on him and then they can call on him for salvation. And that's exactly what's taking place here in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and Acts chapter 8 with respect to the Ethiopian eunuch. How would you like to be identified as a eunuch through eternity? Well, there's a reason for that. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, it says that eunuchs are prohibited from coming into the congregation of the Lord. So this is kind of throwing things on, on its head. The eunuch is supposed, he's not supposed to be allowed into the congregation of the Lord. Um, I will read that just so we can appreciate it. Deuteronomy 23, 1. He that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. All right, that's pretty clear there, but yet Philip is told to go and, and be next to this Ethiopian eunuch. He's not permitted into the congregation of the Lord according to Deuteronomy. God always makes a way in the law. So then you flip over to Isaiah 56, 3 which no doubt the eunuch has no clue about what it says there. But you get to Isaiah 56, 3, and the Lord speaks here, and he says, Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, because I cannot bear fruit, I cannot um, have children, that I'm not permitted in. This eunuch is going to bear lots of spiritual fruit because he's going down to Ethiopia with the gospel and with a treasure in earthen vessels. So we need to appreciate that what, because the Lord sets that before us here. In verse 27, 
it says now, and he arose, that would be Philip, and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure. This man has great responsibility. In his hands, he has the wealth of the nation to dispense it, apparently, as he chooses. He has the charge of all her treasure, and he has come to Jerusalem for to worship. He has something greater than any material treasure can have. He's got a copy of the Bible as it was back then. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. Imagine yourself sitting in an airplane and you're sitting next to somebody who's reading the Bible out loud. Not just to themselves, but out loud. Imagine somebody's actually holding a Bible and reading it. And I've done that and people will ask questions. But I've never read it out loud in an airplane. I guarantee you that. Uh, But that's what he's doing. So he has uh, charge of all her treasure, but he also now has charge of God's treasury by the time this is over because he will have received the Holy Ghost. And uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 talks about that. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, meaning an understanding that, God, uh, that Christ is God incarnate. We have that treasure in earthen vessels. So it says here, he was returning and sitting in his chariot, reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. Romans chapter 10, a preacher is sent. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? Well, that's a good question. I don't think he understands what he's, re- what he's uh, reading. But nevertheless, he has a copy in his hand. He is reading it. And God's going to use Philip to impress the truth upon him because that is what God does. He sends preachers, and he has ordained certain people in the church to be teachers and some to be pastors, um, um, and so on. That's Ephesians chapter 4. So he wants to be taught what it says in here. He needs somebody to guide him. Now, big picture here. I know we're all sinners. We sin. We're uh, technically not sinners, but we do stumble in sin. Nevertheless, God uses us to preach the gospel. And so if you'd read all of chapter 10 of Acts, uh, you would have seen that, strange as it was, an angel comes to Cornelius and says, hey, send him to Peter's house, tell Peter to come and preach you the gospel. Well, that's taken place. Peter gets a message from an angel, you need to go to Cornelius' house and preach the gospel. So I asked the question, well, why didn't the angel just preach the gospel when he came to Cornelius and saved Peter that trip? Well, that's not how God works. He works through men. And so that's the way he has ordained it in Scripture. He told them in Matthew 28, hey, go out and preach the gospel. That's what takes place in Acts chapter 10, and the same thing here in Acts chapter 8. Men preach the gospel. So do you understand what you're reading? That's verse 30. And he says, how can I accept some man guide me? And so he desired that Philip would come up and sit with him, which he does. The place in the Scripture that he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, And like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? Well, he's gotten up to Isaiah 53. He's reading verse 7 and half of verse 8. Doesn't get past that section before um, Philip comes to him and starts to explain it to him. And so we ask the question, who is he speaking about? Is he speaking about himself or some man? In other words, we're not discussing a principle here. We're not discussing an idea here. We're speaking about somebody in particular. Who are we talking about? Well, he's going to tell him. Verse 35. Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture. He's picking it up in Isaiah 53, and he's going to continue from there, and he's going to preach unto him Jesus. That's the gospel. He's going to preach Christ to him. 
Who was Jesus? What did he do? And who did he do it for? So, he continues down here in verse 36. It says, They went on their way, and they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Okay, he's heard the word. He's going he's gonna to believe. He wants to be baptized in water. Verse 37 gives the answer. And by the way, this verse is taken out of the other Bibles. It's the clearest language anywhere what is required for baptism. Verse 37, and Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Then he answered and said, evidencing that he's received the Holy Ghost, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He commands the chariot to stand still. They both go down. They baptize him in water. And then in verse 39, you see evidence that he's been regenerated because he went on his way rejoicing. So there's an order that takes place here, just like everywhere else. He goes on his way rejoicing in verse 39. The order is, preach Jesus, you preach the gospel, belief in the heart, step two, full immersion, step three, and then they see the fruits of salvation later. But that's um, not part of the order. The order is, preach believe, be baptized in water. Now let's take a look at verse 36 again because I find it very interesting. See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Why would he ask that question? Why would he ask, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Why does he have a desire to be baptized? Surely there must have been something in Isaiah 53 that that pricked his conscience about why he might want to be baptized. So if you go to Isaiah 53 and you pick it up where he left off, because that's where Philip picked up in verse 8. I'll read verse 8. It says, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. That's where he had left off. Now Philip's going to pick it up here. He was cut off of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. So he wasn't stricken for himself. He wasn't cut off from the land of the living for himself. He was cut off for somebody else. Then if you follow it down and read a couple other verses, you'll see that uh, in verse 10, thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Well, I wonder whose sin that's going to be for. Verse 11, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So, No doubt, Philip is picking up where he left off, and he's picking up with what Jesus did, that Jesus died for not himself, but for his people. He died for their iniquities, for their sins. So he's setting up Jesus here as the substitution for sinners, that he wasn't led there uh, to the cross because of his sins, but for rather the sins of his people. Hence the question, What doth hinder me to be baptized? He understands substitution and an identification with what Jesus did. So he understands substitution and the vicarious nature of Jesus' death. Now, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus sets this very thing before us in a very clear way, in an interesting set of circumstances. In Matthew chapter 20, I'll pick it up in verse 20. 20 through 23. They're walking with the disciples and um, Zebedee's children's mother's with them and she's looking out for her boys, you know. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. (laughs) Just got this one little favor to ask of you. And he said unto her, what wilt thou? 
Of course, he knows what she's going to ask. She saith unto him, Grant that these my sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. All right, there's an expectation. Jesus is king here that he's going to have an earthly kingdom. And naturally, she wants her boys to be sitting right next to him because that means the whole family will get sucked up in that um, entourage that, of royalty. And you see that in the White House today. You see that everywhere there's power, there's just a whole group of people that get caught up in it, desiring to be so because of the influence that they can exert and the wealth they can garner for themselves. So this is strictly a carnal request. She doesn't understand what she's asking. The boys don't understand that this is about a heavenly kingdom and not an earthly one. So she asks if she can do that, if he would put his boys, one on the left hand and the right hand. Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptized that I am baptized with? And they say unto him, We are able. They have no clue to what he has said. They have no clue to what they've just answered to. They're still thinking earthly kingdom. We see that all the way up through uh, Acts chapter 1, where they're still waiting for the physical restoration of national Israel. And they say, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and shall be baptized with with the baptism that I am baptized with. In other words, yes, you're going to drink that cup, and you're going to be baptized with the baptize, um, baptism that I am baptized with. What is he talking about? Jesus is going to drink the cup of his Father's wrath. He's going to bear the wrath of his Father in baptismal judgment. And yes, you will receive that too if you are in Christ, if you believe in him. It's vicarious. You are not going to suffer the wrath of God. You're not going to drink the cup that he drank. He drank it for us, and he suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. Strictly vicarious. So yes, that is going to happen to you. So the Ethiopian unit understands this vicarious nature of salvation, that Christ has accomplished everything that is necessary, and the Ethiopian eunuch wants to be identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so you have in the clearest statement anywhere in the scripture about that identification in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, he says in verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus, into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. This is our identification with Christ when he went to the cross, when he went to the grave, and when he rose again from the dead. Romans chapter 6, pick it up in verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. That's just what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into his death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, there's lots of doctrinal truths there about how the old man has died and the new man should live according to the way Christ lives. But in a simplistic sense, that is why you do full immersion baptism. That is why you go into the water and you go down under the water like you're being buried with him in death, and then you come back out of the water symbolizing your resurrection with him. That is why sprinkling is meaningless in terms of believer's baptism and acknowledging what Christ has done and being identified with it. Now, 
he asks the question, what doth hinder you, uh, hinder me from being baptized? So the question I say to the congregation, if you have not been baptized, is what doth hinder you? In terms of my case, I resisted it for many years. I was having a doctrinal conversation or argument with a friend of mine who had a propensity for legalism, and I said to him, well, I was baptized as a child, meaning sprinkled. I didn't understand the full import of what the Bible says here. So this went on for a number of years, and I was stubborn in a prideful sort of way where I refused to do it because I'm like, no, salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, and I'm not doing anything that you think has anything to do with my salvation. Well, one day the Lord convicted me. You need to let that go and just be baptized. So five years after, or four years after I became a Christian, then I was baptized the proper way, and I understood and appreciated everything that it meant. So I had to let go of my legalistic argument I had with my friend and just humble myself and uh, be baptized. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, speaking of the analogy of uh, being identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, he uses the example of Noah's Ark. I've shared with us in the past that the Ark is a type of Christ, and you needed to be in it when it started to rain and when God started to pour out his wrath upon the earth. So in here, he's telling you that it's a type of baptism. It doesn't save you, but it identifies with you with Christ, and so it's an answer to a good conscience that you would have it done. So I'll just read that, and then we'll finish up here. I'll pick it up in verse 17 of First Peter chapter 3, just so we can get a little bit of the flow here. In First Peter chapter 3... He says, For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath suffered for the sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which were sometime, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days. Now, this is where we're going to pick it up, but I wanted you to get the flow that whole section there is a major can of worms for people, and I've spent, it'll, it takes like 45 minutes to unopen that up. But nevertheless, here's the part I want you to get. When God, uh, once, once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by or through water. The like figure, that's a type, he's talking about the ark, is a type of Christ. The like figure wherein even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's an answer of a good conscience toward God that you would be baptized because you would understand that just as the ark was a type of Christ, and that ark went through the flood, which represents the wrath of God. He poured it on. He killed everybody on the planet except for the eight people that were in him. In like manner, we were in Christ when he went to the cross, and God poured out his wrath on him, and he went to the grave. He was buried, and he was resurrected again. And we don't want to stop there. He's ascended into glory, and we together with him are also ascended with him into glory. So, why do you want to get baptized? It's an answer of a good conscience toward God, and the Lord should impress that truth upon your heart. Now, simply stated, it is a public confession of your faith in Christ. It is a public confession of your faith in Christ. It is an acknowledgement that he died for you. Not some ethereal thing, not some 
doctrinal thing, not some interesting idea, but had he died for you personally, and you identify yourself with his death, burial, and resurrection. And as such, it's an expression of your love for God and that you trust in him as your Lord and Savior. So this morning, I hope I've set the doctrine of baptism before us. It means lots of different things, but in the context of what we're talking about this morning, what is water baptism all about? What does it represent? What did Christ do for you personally, and do you want to acknowledge that and publicly identify yourself with him? And the answer is, amen. Amen.